Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what would you do if you could turn invisible? I would immediately become visible. Yes. Right, yes. That's, well, that's a wise choice, especially based on the research, right? Well, I just don't have any uh, desire to become invisible. Mm. I'm in the world. I'm here. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. You? Me? Hmm. I feel like I would just want to walk around for a little bit, you know? Just sort of observe. But no, nothing scandalous. What would you observe? I would just, you know, just the, the street, you know, people going about their daily business outside of their homes. Yeah, but, I mean, webcams, that's what those are for. Yeah, but... I, I mean, you know what I'm saying, not in a surreptitious <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, 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 this is where the, the topic gets gets interesting, right? And that's why we can't help but, but love the idea of invisibility in fiction and in myth and why we've had it around for so long. I mean, it dates back, uh, you know, at least to classical mythology, uh, the, the the cap of Hades, the helm of Hades that turned the wearer invisible. And uh, I'm, I'm sure a number of different uh, invisibility gadgets or artifacts come to mind uh, with our popular culture as well. Well, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about J.K. Rowling's once imaginary book, now actual book, The Tales of the Beetle Bard, uh-huh. which takes on this invisibility trope in one of the brothers is granted death's invisibility rope. I won't go through the whole story, but just know this is what happens, right? Yeah. One of the brothers gets the, the robe, which allows him to escape death. And what I love about this use of the invisibility cloak is that it, it shows the, the other aspect to invisibility, which is a kind of immortality, an escape, right? If you're not observed, then you can't be, uh, you can't be removed, right? Yeah. It's kind of an an escape, a freeing of the physical form. You almost become pure thought and observation. Which is tantalizing. Yeah. And I guess it it speaks to your desire to perhaps just go about people's daily lives and watch what's happening, the the machinations, uh, the behind the scenes of life. Yeah, or just sort of the, it, it almost would be like just sort of hitting the, the off switch on things for a little bit, like the the almost like getting a massage, you know, just to go invisible for a little bit. I don't know. But uh, but uh, but but of course, with the power of invisibility comes the the threat of corruption, right? That's the mm-hmm. other great trope with this. The big one uh, for for modern listeners is, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, uh, "The Lord of the Rings," the and the One Ring that that turns the wearer invisible, but also drives that uh, that wearer increasingly towards the dark side and into an evil nature and, and into enslavement by uh, diabolical forces. Or H.G. Uh, Wells, Invisible Man, who takes more of a, certainly a scientific chemical approach to ultimately turning himself invisible. And and he's already kind of a, a semi-rotten person <laughs> before he turns invisible, but then it just gets even worse and more tragic once he transforms. And it doesn't give him the kind of power that he imagines, right? right. I mean, it does truly render him invisible in his actions, and it doesn't, and actually, like, impotent, right? Yeah, like he's cowering and naked on the streets of London. Uh, he's invisible, but he, and he has these grand designs of eventually about how he's going to have this reign of terror, but none of that comes to fruition. <laughs> That's the invisibility cloak for you, or rather, just invisibility in general. Indeed. Now, in this episode, though, we're going to talk about one particular 
invisibility uh, enabling artifact uh, from uh, from myth, but uh, but also from philosophy. That being the Ring of Gyges. This dates back uh, more than two thousand years to a work by Plato titled The Republic. Yeah, The Republic is arguably the most popular and most widely taught of Plato's writings. It's not quite an essay, but it's not quite uh, a novel or a play, although it does borrow from from uh, fictional techniques, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very heavy on dialogue. If you've ever seen My Dinner with Andre, <laughs> uh, you can think of it as like a 2,500-year-old version of that movie, this extended conversation um, that concerns justice. And this conversation goes on for 10 books. It's divided into 10 books. And the participants in the debate are friends or acquaintances of the central speaker, who is Socrates. And they conduct their conversations in the house of one of the participants. And the main speakers are Socrates, uh, Cephalus, Polemarchus, Cephalus' son, Thrasymachus, uh, and Glaucon and Arimantus which uh, Glaucon and Arimantus are Plato's half-brothers, by the way. Yes. And, of course, Plato, for uh, just a reminder uh, for anyone who's just a little foggy on it, uh, Plato was a classical Greek philosopher who lived from 428 to 347 BCE, and he stands with his student Aristotle as one of the key pillars of Western philosophy, science, and arguably even Western culture itself. Now, his dialogues covered philosophy, logic, ethics, rhetoric, religion, mathematics, and, and his work is as potent today as it ever was. I mean, just consider our, our episode from last year on supernormal stimuli, where we talked a little bit about Plato's theory of forms. You know, these, these are ideas that still resonate strongly with the, with the modern reader. Yeah, and what is so amazing about the Republic is that it does come at this idea of justice in so, with so many different angles and from so many different perspectives and voices. And so the speakers all represent uh, various ways of approaching this task at hand. So you see the sophist, you see the Socratic method, right, mm-hmm. at play. Now, in Book 1, Section 4, Socrates refutes Thrasymuchus's Assertion, quote, that justice is in the interest of the stronger or might is right. And he's arguing this kind of situational ethics, uh, Thrasymuchus is. He's praising the benefits of amorality. And eventually, uh, Thrasymuchus, and pardon my Greek, by the way, <laughs> uh, takes off from the conversation and it's left up to Glaucon and Arimantus to really extend this idea of, wait, what do you mean might is right? And Glaucon actually poses a challenge to Socrates. Um, he questions how genuine any human being's commitment to justice actually does. And he does this by introducing a thought experiment. Yes, a thought experiment in the form of uh, a myth with a little bit of uh, history thrown in there as well. The legend of Gyges. Uh, and this concerns Gyges of Lydia. Lydia being an Iron Age kingdom in what is now Western Turkey. And Gyges was a real king, reigning from uh, 716 BCE to 678 BCE. And by all, all accounts seem to agree that he did, in fact, seize the throne by killing King Candalus and marrying Candalus's queen. But the details vary significantly. Sometimes he's a bodyguard goaded into killing the qu- the king by the queen herself, or he's Candalus's right hand man. There are varying levels of uh, of uh, conspiracy involved in different tellings. But Plato focuses 
on a, a version that involves the use of a magical ring. A ring found on the finger of a corpse in an earthquake-uncovered tomb. And then Guy Gies, a shepherd in this telling, quickly discovers the power of the ring. Quote, he contrived to be chosen one of the messengers who were sent by the shepherds to the court, where as soon as he arrived, he seduced the queen and with her help conspired against the king and slew him and took the kingdom. So the details are a little foggy on exactly how he used the, the ring and its power of invisibility to certainly seduce the queen, kill the king. That's a little more straightforward, I guess. But uh, in short, the ring gave this guy the power of anonymity. It freed him from the risks of judgment, control, and punishment. And so he simply took what he wanted, the life that he wanted to take, the position he wanted to claim as his own, and the woman he wanted to bed. Right. So Glaucon doesn't just, you know, tell the story and then drop the mic. He goes on to say, hey, I'm trying to demonstrate something here that not only do people prefer to be unjust rather than just, but it's actually rational for them to do so because look at this guy. He indulges in all of his urges. He's honored and rewarded with wealth. Um, but the completely just man, on the other hand, might be scorned and might be sort of a wretched character. And his brother, Adimantus, chimes in and says, yeah, no one praises justice for its own sake, but only for the rewards it allows you to reap in both this life and the afterlife. And he challenges Socrates to show justice to be desirable in the absence of any external rewards, that justice for justice's own sake is desirable, just like something like joy or health. So the the argument here is that anyone who put on this ring would be corrupted. If you had a a good person and a bad person and you gave them each a magical ring of Gyges, both of them would end up at the same place, like, you know, invisible and naked in a supermarket causing havoc. Right, because that person would be rewarded with whatever they wanted. Right. As opposed to doing the right thing, um, But doing the right thing when you're unobserved, that's a big Mm. question mark, which we'll get to. Indeed. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned dropping the mic, because definitely um, Plato is not a boom mic dropper type of guy. No. Um, In the the, the Republic itself, it's a sprawling work, and we are by no means attempting to summarize it. It's not not a Q&A. &A. It's not someone saying, hey, what's justice, Plato? And he says, ah, it's this. It's... um, it's not even, it, I tend to think of it in terms of a, of a war. Like not a particular battle, but a series of battles. It's a sprawling yeah. work. And in the work, Socrates takes a very long form approach to tackling the issue of morality and justice. But ultimately, he argues that a truly just man is not enslaved by his appetite. So the ring would not tempt him to abandon his principles. But, we're humans, and humans have this overpowering tendency to be corrupted by power, leading leading to tyranny, uh, abuse of power, any kind of horrible situation you could imagine. However, he ultimately argues in this that philosophers are the most just and the least susceptible to corruption. So the ideal republic, a, a true utopia, would be governed by philosopher kings. Which hasn't exactly turned out to be <laughs> right. the case over history. And uh, the, the reason why this ring of Gaiji's is so such a potent image is because it's not just the invisibility, it's secrecy. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the a republic, a state, a government, you know that the increasing secrecy that, that covers a politician's actions 
can cause that person to gain uh, more power over time. And that secrecy begins to act like a, some sort of invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Socrates is, is so interested in this idea. And that's why it takes 10 books <laughs> to plumb the depths of it. Because, you know, the question, what is justice, remains just as crucial today as it did, you know, 2,500 years ago. Indeed. You know, I can't help but be reminded of our episode on the Panopticon. Like the message of the Panopticon is basically saying there is no ring of Gyges. There's no ring. You're not turning invisible. You are visible at all times. So act accordingly. Which is two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Because both exact absolute power. Right. Right. So invisibility, you have absolutely absolute power. And then if you have omniscience, mm-hmm. right, and you can see what everybody's doing, then you have absolute power, which would absolutely corrupt. Right. And then, of course, there's a, a very corrupting element to being just completely under the boot hills of a power and limited in your, your freedom. We're going to do a little bit more soul-searching here on morality, and we're going to look at Adam Smith, who was a Scottish moral philosopher, a pioneer of political economy, and a key Scottish Enlightenment figure. And he's best known for his writings on free market capitalism and the division of labor. Uh, but he also wrote about morality and self-interest in his 1759 book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he argued that morality comes from empathy. So you see someone suffer or you think about someone suffering and you make a moral choice, which may bolster that person's well-being, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're kind of duped into doing the right thing by virtue of imagining yourself in that person's position. And his idea is that both the individual and society benefit if we pursue our own interests through virtuous actions. Now, Caroline Gregoire profiles Stanford economist Russ Roberts, uh, who has a book about Smith called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. <laughs> and he says that Smith's writings are the best self, self-help advice that no one has ever known about or written about. And he says that the four essential pieces of wisdom from Smith are one, that we are all innately self-interested, but we're also wired to care about others. Two, the desire to be loved is universal. Mm-hmm. Three, don't waste your energy trying to change things you can't control. I've heard that one before, right? Uh, and number four, let go of attachments. And by attachments, he means uh, anything that causes us to obsess on what we have now and what we want in the future and violations of our um, expected outcomes concerning that, which is kind of, he gets a little bit Buddhist there, which is yeah. interesting for this 1759 book. And so all of this is really well and good, but in terms of putting aside our own agendas and, and choosing the virtuous action, it does require a measure of empathy, which means it would be ideal if we could just blast society with an empathy-inducing molecule to get us all on the same ethics page, right? I can't imagine that going wrong at all. No, mm-hmm. right? I just, just, I mean, it's getting piped in right now at how stuff works as we speak. Um, you know, I could, of course, but there is a study that relates to this kind of idea. There's a 2009 Center for Neuroeconomic Study with graduate student Jorge Peraza who found a direct relationship between oxytocin released in blood and the subjective experience of empathy when participants watched an emotionally charged video about a four-year-old boy with terminal cancer. Those who were more empathetically engaged by the video were more generous 
when asked to share resources they controlled with a stranger in this lab experiment. So what we're talking about is infusing synthetic oxytocin into people, which then caused them, uh, relative to those given a placebo, by the way, to be 80% more generous towards a stranger. Now, in a follow-up study, they uh, they took a little testosterone, which inhibits empathy by blocking the action of oxytocin. And when researchers administered synthetic testosterone uh, to these men in the study, they were less generous when they were asked to split money with a stranger, and they were more likely to punish those who were ungenerous towards them. So this has led some people to call oxytocin the trust or moral molecule. But um, this is a bit of an oversimplification, right? Because first of all, we're just talking about some lab experiments. And uh, second of all, there's a lot more going on under the surface of morality because you have to consider that morality may be a situation-dependent sort of thing at play. I'm talking about um, the sort of moral code that you might have been raised with as a child that mm-hmm. would affect the sort of decisions that you would make. Um, also, what kind of society do you live in? Is it stable? Is it uh, or is it just a, a war-torn society that has no stability? The socioeconomic environment is in shreds. If that's the case, then all of a sudden your choices become fewer and the, the types of choices you would make would be very different. And I was thinking about this in terms of our episode on politeness. Yes. Because th- there are some parallels here. Because in the politeness episode, we were talking about face-threatening acts and, and not getting people's hackles up, you mm-hmm. know, and trying to do the right thing so that your public self was accepted, right? Which meant that we might do something called a little bit of dramaturgical analysis on people. We might look at people as performing a part in performing politeness when we're representing our public selves. And morality may operate in a similar way. Now, of course, when we talk about morality in the human sense, we we draw in all the human complications that come with it, right? And all the different associations, uh, you know, such as laws, values, uh, the the nature of altruism, uh, the duality of right and wrong. Uh, but uh, there's a different way to look at morality. Uh, for instance, Dale Peterson, um, science writer um, who uh, wrote a book titled The Moral Lives of Animals. And this is a book that uh, it would be easy to dismiss his core arguments here as him just saying, oh, animals are like people uh, because they have some sense of morality. But I think the, there's a deeper statement to be made about morality itself, which he uh he describes as a, quote, moral organ. And he, one of the examples he makes is, is an elephant trunk versus, say, a human nose. Both are essentially the same thing. One is larger, physically larger. One has a, has a tremendously more uh, more power to, uh, to sense things in its environment. But they both stem from the same purpose. They kind of grow from the same roots, right? He argues that the features of human morality differ from other animals, but it's all ultimately a part of the brain's limbic system, which, of course, is tied to emotion, behavior, and motivation, as as well as a number of other functions. So Peterson's arguing that the purpose of morality is to negotiate the inherent serious conflict uh, that uh, can exist between self and others. So, again, it's not about simplistic models of morality based on laws or right and wrong. It's more of a natural instinct to guide behavior and social interaction for an organism. So on a very basic level, that would be what 
to eat, what not to eat, who to bite, who not to bite, how to behave in this uh, potential mating scenario versus this conflict over food. Again, that it's a it's it's a, a moral guideline that uh, that is just a part of our DNA. Right, and some of those moral guidelines help in terms of overall species survival, right? Yes. So all what's the the term? All boats, uh, one boat rises, all boats rise. All boats go to Rome, I believe. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, point being that if you can take care of a sector of people, everybody benefits from it. So in that way, morality should be exacted. But again, the question appears about whether or not people will actually engage in it when they are not being watched. And this is, this is again, bringing in the panopticon, the sense that you're being watched uh, plays into a couple of these studies. Um, this is from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology by C. Neil McRae, Gallen V. Bodenhausen, and Alan, Alan B. Milne, who found that people in a room with a mirror were comparatively less likely to judge others based on so- uh, social stereotypes about, for example, sex, race, or religion. And Bodenhausen says when people are made to be self-aware, they are likelier to stop and think about what they are doing Physical self-reflection, in other words, encourages philosophical self-reflection. And then another study in 2006 by Melissa Bateson et al. titled, quote, Cues of Being Watched Enhance Cooperation in a Real-World Setting examined the effect of an image of a pair of eyes on contributions to an honesty box used to collect money for drinks in a university coffee room and here's the deal. You, you stick on uh, some googly eyes on a contributions box, <laughs> <laughs> and people will pay nearly three times as much for their drinks than if it's just a regular contributions huh. box. Why do we not see more of this at coffee shops? Stick some googly eyes. If you're listening and you work in a coffee shop, put some googly eyes in that tip jar. Uh, but I already feel like I'm being watched. I yeah, have to but say. they have to turn around sometimes. Uh, they don't see right. you put the money in, and it feels... Weird to go all Seinfeldy <laughs> on it. Now, both of these are examples of, quote, the reminder effect, reminding you of the moral codes in place, that you're being watched, that you're being judged, and you should act accordingly. And that leads us to the work of C. Daniel Bastan, who has this uh, this theory, this moral hypocrisy theory, which stems from uh, uh, a few studies that he conducted himself, which used a mirror, uh, and, and also in one case used a coin, uh, testing just what happens when we're left alone to make dis- decisions? Uh, in this case, the, the mirror playing the role of the uh, of, of, of being watched. Mm-hmm. The, the individual in the mirror is watching us, as in these previous studies. And in the case of the coin, uh, in one of the studies, it's presented as an option where if you don't want to actually make the, uh, the, the amoral choice, you can flip the coin and let the coin to decide. So Beston, in his, uh, in his moral hypocrisy theory, he argues that we don't have any kind of inherent morality, that... As with uh, as with the, the Ring of Gyges uh, uh, argument, we all possess a desire to appear moral to other. To we all possess a desire to appear moral to others and to ourselves, without having to bear the costs of that moral behavior when no one is watching. So that would be when you're wearing the Ring of Gyges, when you're leaving comments in a YouTube thread, when you're writing on the bathroom wall. You name it. I mean, there's, it actually ties into. Uh, to what uh, some people refer to as the Geiges effect uh, in, in reference to Internet trolls, uh, people leaving nasty comments or even making death threats and, and other violent threats online. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's no one there to judge the morality of their actions, and then therefore they give in to their own boredom, their own uh, need for attention, or their need to strike back against some sort of perceived oppressor. So the idea is that given the chance, we'd all slip the ring on. But we'd prefer to see our actions as moral, regardless of whether or not they actually are. And this is where we get into moral rationalization, okay? We we steal from the office supplies because we feel that we've earned them, or because the boss was mean to you, or because you had a bad day, or because you just need them more than someone else needs them. And so in Bastan's uh, studies, the coin again, played the, played the role of an agent uh, of choice outside of ourselves, the cultural norms that you can fall back on. Mm-hmm. Someone say, oh, it's, it's okay to act like this. It's okay to steal office supplies, and therefore I shall do it. And then, of course, the mirror is the witness. I can't steal office supplies because someone is watching me, that someone might be another person, or, of course, it's yourself uh, judging your own actions. But, again, the argument here is that we're all essentially moral hypocrites and that if we, uh, if we could slip on that ring, figuratively speaking, we would all just clean out the office supplies entirely. You think? I think so. It would just be an empty room. <laughs> I don't know. I feel at some point the, the office supplies become sort of one of those things that you're like, eh, how many highlighters do I really need? Right? <laughs> and Maybe that, one at home, not <laughs> ten. Yeah. That, that would, I think that would be the ultimate uh, you know, agony that would sit in over time. Now, I wanted to read this quote from Michio Kaku, who uh, in his book, Physics of the Impossible, writes, quote, morality is a social construct imposed from the outside. A man may appear to be moral in public to maintain his reputation for integrity and honesty, but once he possesses the power of invisibility, the use of such power would be irresistible indeed. And that's what we've been talking about. And he talks about this also in the context of science. So, um if I'm to get this right, the physics of the impossible is uh, the impossible part is a bit of a misnomer, right? Because mm-hmm. eventually almost everything becomes possible with time and technology. So, for instance, flight for humans, mm-hmm. once an impossibility, now a possibility. And if you look at some of the technologies in place when it comes to invisibility, you begin to see this emerging body of evidence that the ability to recede into the shadows undetected is becoming more and more possible. And indeed, uh, in 2013, a time cloak was used to hide messages and laser light. And what we're talking about is uh, photons path can be tweaked to create a brief gap where information can safely hide. And a team from Purdue University built this cloak that could transfer hidden data at 1.5 gigabytes a second fast enough to make it theoretically useful for real communication. And, of course, we've seen uh, all sorts of materials in use um, and metamaterials to try to bend light around an object to make it uh, imperceptible. And we know that the military uses some of this as well. So nothing new but new in the sense that more and, and more understanding is coming online in terms of invisibility cloaking technology, which means that we might be able to cruise around undetected, uh, eavesdropping 
on people's conversations one day. Yeah, it's not 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 impossible. I mean, uh, it seems like there's a new invisibility cloak headline out every six months or so, which makes it very hard uh, to uh, to keep the how invisibility cloaks article on how stuff works up to date because there are always new methods coming online with uh, meta materials and what have you. But yeah, we could eventually reach the point where. A, a a a ring of geigies of sorts is an actual possibility. Right. We were talking about Vanta Black not too long oh, ago. Yeah. That the material that absorbs ninety eight percent of light, and if it actually has a crinkle in it, you would never know. Yeah. Because it's just it's this black void. The blackest black possible. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a uh, again it's something that would have been an impossibility a hundred years ago, but now we see that it's. Very possible. Yeah, and in the meantime, we still have to deal with the uh, the virtual invisibility of uh, of our various uh, presences on the web, uh, and and as well as sort of the old fashioned ways of just getting by with things w- without when people are not watching. Which, of course, leads to the question: Yes, that we will pose to you all out there: If you had the chance to cloak yourself in invisibility, what might you do? Yeah, and let's put a limit on it. Let's say you only have one day. One day. What do you do? One hour. One hour. Okay. One hour. Even better. One hour of invisibility. That's all you get. What do you do? Well, actually, let's let's give them more than an hour. Okay. Maybe they've got to get to the airport. An afternoon, maybe? The afternoon. That sounds okay. nice. You have one afternoon of invisibility, and, and we're not coming down or up on this. This is, this is it. One afternoon of invisibility. What do you do? Let us know. Let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, uh, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our episodes. Uh, some of these past episodes we've been talking about, like Politeness and Panopticon, uh, you'll find links to those on the landing page for this episode. Uh, you'll also find uh, all the other content that we've put out there. All right. So when you have whipped up your invisibility scenario, you can send us your thoughts about it and what you would do to the email address below the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 